and welcome to Planet Poet Words in Space. I'm your host, Sharon Israel, and it's Poetry Month, National Poetry Month, but here at Planet Poet, it's always Poetry Month, day, hour, and minute. And I'm happy to, so happy to welcome poet, essayist, and novelist, a Sparrow, back to the show by phone from Phoenicia, New York, to discuss his new book, Small Happiness and Other Epiphanies. Hi, Sparrow. Hi there. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Oh, Appreciate it very it's, much. It's a great it's a great pleasure. Let me read your bio. Spar- okay. Sparrow lives in a double wide trailer in the salutary hamlet of Phoenicia, New York. He has published ten books, the most recent being Small Happiness and Other Epiphanies, published by Monkfish Publishing. Sparrow, among many other things, plays the tonette in the axiomatic pop group. Foamola. Foamola? Is that correct, Sparrow? Foamola. Foamola, sorry. And, um, and, and Sparrow is, is very, very well known nationally and locally. And, um, I'm just gonna let you start reading, Sparrow. If you'd like. Okay, great. Um, okay, I think I'll start with this, um, essay in my book. It's called some secrets of home maintenance. Home maintenance. Maintaining your home, you know. Yeah. My relationship to home repair is like a Manhattanite's concept of cooking. My main task is to dial the phone. In fact, I am a Manhattanite by birth and grew up in a housing project where all maintenance was speedily accomplished by city employees. One of the numbers I dial is Paraco, our propane company, once a year, to ask for a furnace inspection. A gentle but methodical fellow named Ralph comes, cleans our furnace, and saves us from death by frostbite. (laughs) Despite my personal inadequacies in home maintenance, I have compiled a list of suggestions for you, precious reader. Number one, name your house. The English do this, and it's always appealing. Violet and I stayed in a mansion called Columace in Cheltenham in 1986. Four American soldiers had been billeted there during World War II, and the house's name was a combination of their states of origin. Here's a suggestion. Title your domicile after your favorite beer, Budweiser Manor or Dos Equis Hall are memorable destinations. And this is number two. Uh, Write an anthem for your house. Here is one based on the Swedish national anthem. So this is an anthem, you know, you can have an anthem for a country, but you can also have one for the house. So I wrote this one for my house based on the Swedish national anthem, and I'm going to sing it. Thou ancient, thou free, thou mountain-encircled home, thou quiet, thou joyful and fair, I greet thee, most beauteous house upon earth, the noble sun rises above thee. That's lovely, lovely. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. I just improvised that Mm -hmm. uh, tune, believe it or not. 
sing it every morning when you awaken, just after urinating. And I guess I'll read uh, maybe one more section here, uh, number 10. Don't vacuum. Usually it's unnecessary to sweep or vacuum your house. Just wait for the dust to form dust bunnies or dust mice, lovely phrases, and toss them out the front door. I guess I'll I'll stop there in my uh, whatever guide to home maintenance. It's it's very practical and mystical at the same time, Sparrow. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, that's my what's the word trademark. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm much. reading this book about Thoreau, and you know Thoreau was practical and mystical, and funny, but nobody realizes it anymore. According to this biography I'm reading. Yeah, it's like Chekhov. Nobody remembers him for his humor. That's right. <laughs> A lot. I kind of believe actually that every great writer is funny. This is something I kind of deeply believe. <laughs> Uh, a good example is Melville, uh, Moby Dick. You know, each sentence is is full of jokes, but uh, you know, you have to be whatever sensitive to it to hear them. Uh, that has been um, re- uh, deconstructed. Uh, there's a huge book on on Melville de- deconstruction. I could not even start it. It was so difficult. But um, mm. we'll always have the doubloon. You know what's that? The doubloon that was nailed up on the Pequod, and that oh, was sort yeah, of a symbol. Doubloon. Yeah, I want to ask you about the genesis of the book, and this uh-huh. you, you call this as a collection of self-help, self-harm advice. Can you explain? <laughs> yeah. My wife said, "Yeah, I can't, I can't use the phrase self-harm because it's actually a phrase." I'm trying to think of the term that's the opposite of self-help. I'm, I'm, I have a kind of obsession with self-help, and uh, so this is sort of my collected self-help writings over the years. Uh, I mean, the main reason that it's published is I wrote an essay called Small Happiness that appeared mm-hmm. in The Sun magazine. I uh, write for this magazine for the, the called The Sun. I've been writing for 40 years. This is my 40th year. Wow. I mean, this is, this is basically what I've done with my life. I've that's done a my great meditation, magazine. and I've written for the Sun, the Sun in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and not cro- some and, other Sun. And 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 chronogram, and um, and as you can uh, say, the Woodstock Times, correct? But the Sun yeah, is the yeah, most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of these pieces were written for the Woodstock Times. But I wrote this piece called "Small Happiness" that essentially, I mean, my memory is that I wrote it for my daughter when she was about twenty-three. And I wanted to synthesize all the wisdom I'd learned in my life to pass on to her in case I got hit by a truck mm. the next day. And that was Small Happiness, this essay. And Paul Cohen, the guy who publishes uh, Monkfish, he mm-hmm. loved this essay, wanted to publish it as a little book, one of those little books that's next to the counter in the uh, bookstore that people steal, you know. I guess it's next to the counter to prevent people from stealing it, but I think people still steal them. Uh, so, uh, but, so then, you know, we kind of negotiated with uh, over the years to do it, because maybe I published this in 2015. Well, if it's true that my daughter was 23 then, she's 29 now. Anyway, so, uh, and then, uh, you know, finally he, we agreed we're going to do it. And then um, what happened? Uh, we looked at the essay. It's too small. It's too small even for a small book. Huh. 
So then I thought, well, maybe I'll just gather together a bunch of other essays I've written that will help the human race and uh, put them in a book. And I sent him the manuscript, and he printed the whole thing. You know, he didn't kick out anything, but he uh, re... Susan Piperato, his ace editor, uh, who's kind of an old friend of mine, she reordered it and made it make some sort of rational, logical sense, which my original editing uh, lacked. Well, it's it really flows beautifully, and it's very funny and very inspiring and informative. And oh, yeah, it yeah. does all those things. So, Sparrow, would you read some more for us? Oh, yeah, more of it. Well, let me see if I... Uh, what I have in mind here. Um, well, I think this one, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about the fact that one of my goals was to uh, to sort of combine, you know, actual true facts with, like, utterly ridiculous uh, suggestions. And I think the most successful example of that is this uh, essay called Dance Your Way to Health. Dance Your Way to Health which even the title sounds like it could be a real article. And it begins kind of real, like this, it begins. Believe it or not, science has studied the health benefits of dancing. Dancing improves balance and coordination, muscle strength, flexibility, and increases metabolism. The most immediate improvement I find is to the back. Properly executed, gentle undulation relieves lower back distress. Once you continuously move for 20 minutes, you receive the blessings of aerobic exercise, including cardiovascular enhancement and even better memory. And don't forget mental health. It's hard to be despondent while dancing. A dance doctor examines the patient and prescribes particular movements to improve bodily functioning. Visit a dance doctor today. And here are some further tips. So maybe around here it starts to get a little... Yeah, I see it shifting into something else right (laughs) now. You sort of feel like the ground (laughs) shifting under you. You do, I do. And here's one. Use the two radio method. Listen to two radios playing two different stations simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Now do a complex cha-cha to both stations at once. Do the towel dance. Many daily household activities may be transformed into dances, just as Gene Kelly spins classic movie magnetism by walking with an umbrella in Singing in the Rain. Try beginning a dance by toweling yourself off after a bath, and while showering, stomp to a 3-4 rhythm, a wet waltz. Most showers are in 3-4. A bath is usually two for. Oh, yeah, and this one is an important one here. While you're waiting, dance. Train yourself to treat any delay as a dance invitation. As you stand online at the supermarket, begin to whirl. (laughs) After all, music is playing, almost always. With any luck, everyone else standing online will join you. Then the cashier. Then the store manager. Oh, I love that. I can just see it happening, too. I know. it's very, Yeah, it's very visual. There's something, what's the word, you know, particularly visual about the mm. way I write. And it seems to me, like, I've noticed that, 
you know, if I have fans, I used to have a column in the chronogram decades ago called A Quarter to Three. Hmm. And every so often somebody would tell me, I love your column, just love it. And then after a while I started saying to the person, by any chance are you a visual artist? And they would always be a visual artist. Why that is, I can't quite figure, but it may have something to do with the fact that I'm constantly reading comic books. Well, also, I'm an art critic, come to think of it, for, uh, for, for now, for Chronograph. Yeah, like yeah. They, they kind of kicked me out of my dopey column and, uh, you know, demoted me to quasi-art critic. Well, I call myself actually the most prominent avant-garde art critic of the Hudson Valley. Well, that's a, it's a great, um, it's a great um, extension of being a poet. There are so many, there were many art critics who were poets, John O'Hara, John Ashbery, Peter Sheldon. Yeah, yeah. You're just right in I used there. To read those, uh, I used to read those John Ashbery and, columns in the New York Magazine, and they were really odd. <laughs> yeah. Eventually published, of and course, collected quite, and published. Yours is quite lovely. It's a, um, uh, an essay on the sculpt, sculptor Andrew Moore. If, um, it's no, in, the uh, photographer. Photographer, Moore, I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's in this month's chronogram. And I always like dance. I always think um, dancing is a real celebration of being bipedal. It's like... <laughs> No, I, That's a good point. I really, I really do. This is Planet Poet Words in Space at WIOX Community Radio. We're live and local from the Catskills. I'm Sharon Israel, your host, and joining me by phone from Phoenicia is a true original poet, essayist, and novelist, Sparrow. Sparrow, could you briefly discuss, discuss the book's structure? You sort of started it. Um, it, it oh, yeah. Well, let me see. You know, this... Uh uh, you know, I think I was writing some kind of generic self-help book. Maybe I wrote it for this book. I can't remember. But So there's a bunch of really tiny thoughts that are collected into uh, several different chapters, one called Brief Epiphanies, mm-hmm. one called Extended Epiphanies, and uh, and then one called Small Happiness and one called Smaller Happiness. So... Uh, and then the most of the uh, book was written uh, as a strange essays for the supplements to the Woodstock Times. I would say at least half the book. Um, so a friend of mine, Paul Smart, was uh, the editor of these supplements. So the, like one was on home improvement. I just read you my mm-hmm. my classic essay on home improvement. Then they'd have uh, an issue on uh, summer pleasures. Uh, you know, they tended to be kind of seasonal. Uh, mm-hmm. And then one on, like, how to winterize, you know, winter's coming, winterizing your house. So I got these assignments to write these various pieces, and somehow I gradually realized that they really didn't care what I wrote. I could just write any nonsense that came into my head, and uh, they would publish them and pay me $100. Nice. So, uh, you know, the, uh, so, you know, I wrote them, you know, I'm a sort of hard-working guy. Like, I tend to think, as maybe you can tell already, in parag- I think in paragraphs. So I'll be walking around. All morning I don't talk. I'll come up with a line. It may grow into a paragraph, but usually never much more than that. And then I gradually accumulate them. Then I edit them. So then I, I re-edited them. Mm-hmm. 
for this book because, you know, now they were, like, actually going to be read by anybody. Because in these supplements to the Woodstock Times, essentially no one reads them as far as I can tell. So, uh, and the Woodstock Times doesn't even exist anymore. It's been replaced by the Hudson Valley oh. One. So, uh, you know, this is a, uh, what's the word, a relic of an era. So, you know, I wrote all these different pieces. They all, you know, I edited them, edited them until I kind of liked them, tried to kick, kick out all the crappy parts, the really self-indulgent parts. And, uh, and then Susan Pepperato knocked them into some order that made sense to her that I thought would make sense to me and, uh, you know, that I agreed with. I'm a collaborator at heart. I kind of mm-hmm. believe in letting other people uh, rifle through your uh, thoughts and reorient sure. them. The thing I was happiest about was that they commissioned me to do little drawings for this book, and I I'm, consider myself really a brilliant artist. <laughs> so, did, did you do uh, the cover of the book? It's quite beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I did the four drawings on the cover. Yeah, I didn't nice. do the actual... The yeah, one of them is my wife, actually. And I that's, had my Violet, wife, that's like, Violet Snow, by the way. Violet Snow, yeah. I asked her to jump around and dance, because they noticed that there was a theme of dancing in the book Mm -hmm. that recurs, not just the part Mm -hmm. I read. So uh, they asked me to draw people dancing, so I drew an angel, I drew this guy, copied from the Internet, I think Chubby Checker, actually. Then some hippie woman dancing, and then my wife. That's lovely. Sparrow, you you have some other poems of other poets in... In the book. Oh, yeah. Could you talk about those and, and maybe read some for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I reread this book. In fact, I'm an obsessive uh, contributor to Goodreads. Every book I read, I review on Goodreads, mm. which is some website for literary type liter- people that think they're literary. Mm. <laughs> so I reviewed this for Goodreads. I think I gave it like the most number of stars. I forget whether that's four or five. But I gave it a pretty negative review, as I recall. But anyway, I reread the book, and I suddenly noticed, my God, there's really a lot of 19th century poetry in here. Corny, (laughs) old-fashioned poetry. So I'm going to read a few pieces of it. Um, uh, Let me see. This is a a section from, uh, I think, from the the first section, Small Happiness, Mm -hmm. where I'm talking about, well, how can you be happy in life in a small way another small happiness of mine is writing really dumb poems which strike me as funny here's one it's called in my living room a potato chip ruins the symmetry of the carpet (laughs) composing bad poetry helps me appreciate great poetry the older i get the more delight i receive reading the masters yesterday i was astounded by john anderson my joe this is by robert burns john anderson my joe john when we were first acquaint your locks were like the raven your bony brow was brent but now your brow is belled john your locks are like the snaw but blessings on your frosty pow John Anderson, my Joe. John Anderson, my Joe, John, we clam the hill together. And monia cantide, John, 
we've had we ain't a neither. Now we mon totter down, John, and hand in hand we'll go, and sleep together at the foot, John Anderson, my Joe. Hmm. Can I read one more? Maybe? Sure. That's such an emotional poem. It's you know it's funny because I I was reading some essay in uh, what is it the American Book Review is some kind of small potatoes book review that I sometimes write for mm-hmm. and there was a whole issue on erotic poetry and it said that this poem and a whole bunch of uh, Burns poems Robert Burns poems were dirty songs like really uh, obscene songs that he was commissioned to, to essentially rewrite and kind of sanitize. <laughs> well, and he, it gave the original, and it was like, the original is like, you know, he can't get it up anymore because he's old, so forget it, John Anderson. And then he, you know, he sort of crafted it to make it a little well, more gentle. Well, he had a very <laughs> he, he had a very active erotic life, uh, uh, oh, Robert Burns. Right? Oh, yes. Yes, he was hmm. known for that. He died young, right? You know, I I don't probably did, but um, I'm sure you're right. Uh, I wonder why. Give us another exactly. one. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. So here in my uh, in my essay on um, what is it called? Uh, what to buy for summer? Summer. Uh, let's see. Uh, suggestions of purchases. Now is the perfect time to tape a poster to your wall. In winter, a poster looks saturnine and lifeless, but in summer, a poster sparkles. But whose picture should you choose? I suggest a poster featuring a lyric by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And then I give a sample lyric. O summer day beside the joyous sea, O summer day so wonderful and white, so full of gladness and so full of pain, Forever and forever shalt thou be to some the gravestone of a dead delight, to some the landmark of a new domain. <laughs> mm, it's really very, uh, it, it sounds so beautiful, though. It's, it's very um, uh, lyrical. Uh, to, uh, yeah. We were talking about how he was immensely famous during his life, and now he's poo-pooed on. Yeah, I did look him up today because we were thinking maybe we were going to talk about him. And, like, the craziest uh, uh, fact I saw about him on Wikipedia, uh, the rapidity with which American readers embraced Longfellow was unparalleled in publishing history in the United States. By Hmm. 1874, he was earning $3,000 per poem. (laughs) Yeah. In the last two decades of his life, he often received requests for autographs from strangers, which he always sent. John Greenleaf Whittier suggested that it was this massive correspondence which led to Longfellow's death. Hmm. My friend Longfellow was driven to death by these incessant demands. That's a quote from from Whittier. Hmm. And then, you know, there's some great quotes about how everybody now hates him, you know. In the 20th century, literary scholar Kermit Vanderbilt, very nice name, (laughs) noted, um, increasingly rare is the scholar who braves ridicule to justify the art, 
of Longfellow's popular mm-hmm. rhymings. Mm-hmm. 20th century poet Louis Putnam Turco concluded that Longfellow was minor and derivative in every way throughout his career, nothing more than a hack imitator of the English romantics. Ooh. So it's like a it's like a tragic poem in a way, the life <laughs> life of Longfellow that he's you know, was the biggest poet of his time and now is kind of an embarrassment. Sort of a lesson. Probably even for... more of an embarrassment now that you know, uh, dead white men are really out of mm-hmm. Well I'm favor. sure maybe he'll his fame will his name will be uh reevaluated soon. Or later, or maybe yeah. never. Yeah, um, well, not by me, because I don't like them. Although I did, I was reading So I mean, this is what a, I, I read a lot of these anthologies of mm-hmm. these old, particularly American poets, but also English poets, these kind of 19th century poets. And I'm fascinated by them now. I'm very drawn to them now. And I did read a poem somewhere by Longfellow, and uh, and I thought it was great. And then I realized, oh, it's by Longfellow, my enemy. <laughs> and, and then I thought, well, I have to be, uh, you know, and, and, decent about this. And what is, dra- <laughs> what is drawing you to them? The, the rhythms? The sound? I don't know. It does seem like real poetry. I think mm-hmm. a lot of poetry, like most poetry, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but most poetry that's written today is not poetry. It's just prose chopped up into mm. lines. And I'm talking about the stuff in the New Yorker. I mean, I'm talking about the, you know, really famous poets. It just, mm-hmm. or it's got some kind of really crappy rhythm, like a kind of, like one of my theories about the New Yorker. Each line in the in the poems is is good, but altogether it sucks because there's no mm-hmm. rhythm between the lines. There's no sense mm-hmm. of the rhythm of speech, you know, in general, and and. You know, these mostly guys, of course, you know, who were doing this in the 19th century and even earlier, of course, uh, they they understood what poetry was. They had this idea of, and maybe they were inspired by the muse like they said they were. Well, know? it's very possible. I think you have your muse, too. I have to talk about that. I mean, I do. I, you know, I, I have something. I don't know what if it's a muse or an anti-muse. I consider myself an anti-poet, personally. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm writing poems with the intention of destroying poetry, not with the intention of creating poetry. And at that, I'm pretty successful. But then, <laughs> you know, I write what I like to say about myself or don't like to say about myself is I write prosaic poems and poetic prose, mm-hmm. which you can kind of hear that, actually, yes. in the, uh, the stuff I've read already. You're listening to Planet Poet Words in Space. I'm your host, Sharon Israel, here with Poet and f- an anti-poet, and <laughs> prosaic poet, and prose poet, philosopher Sparrow, by phone from Phoenicia, New York. And now bringing us the latest in poetic insights is Planet Poets Poet at Large, Pamela Munchak. Oh, that's... There is Pamela's theme, joining us by phone from Manhattan. Okay. And uh, Pamela is a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet, and she's currently taking workshops with performance artist and writer Karen Finley at the Hudson Valley Writer Center. Hi, Pamela. Hello. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Sparrow. I'm in, I'm oh, in hi. Hello. 
Hello, how are you? I'm enjoying myself so much, and I, I was just so delighted when you sang your song at the beginning, uh, Sparrow. You reminded me that uh, my late husband and I had a family song that we used to sing oh. when we drove to Key West with our cats. So that really huh. brought a smile to my lips, and I started to hum the tune, so thank you very much. <laughs> And Pamela, I would get that seam right. I have to practice a little bit by getting the fading and entering and fading correctly. So forgive me. I, I'm so I'm so delighted to have my own theme written by Robert Cucinotta that you can play that over my talking. Yes. You can keep playing it, Sharon. Oh, as I'm talking, it's fine. Pamela, what do you have for us today? Well, I'm going to talk about the art of collage, and it's in visual art and in uh, writing and in in jazz, and what prompted me to uh, to put this together for today's show, or to think about this, was there. Were, I think it was uh, a Saturday, and I spent the morning finishing a collage that I needed for the next day. And I make collages, and you know, I had I had um, images from Vogue and from Travel and Leisure, and pieces of tool and some paint and uh, paper towel, and uh, I put all that together, and then. I spent the afternoon at a generative poetry workshop that I love, and we created poems from random word lists and videos, some ancient texts. We looked at some art. Uh, and then to relax, that evening I, I streamed jazz from uh, Smoke Jazz Club, and it was the pianist uh, Sullivan Fortner with his trio. And my ears perked up when he said, um, at one point, he was talking to us, and he said that he likes to make, uh, he loves to play standards, but he likes to make them new. So, for example, he had taken the sheet music for all the things you wore, and he tore them up, uh, threw them into the air, uh, picked them up, and patched mm -hmm. them together, and he wrote a new piece called You Are All Things, <laughs> which he played. And um, I was very struck by the feeling that I could feel the original standard in that in the new version of it, and it was really intriguing, and it was very exciting. And then all of this kind of coalesced in my mind, and I went into my um, to my workroom, and I took off the shelf uh, one of my favorite books, which is uh, a collage of myself, which is about, of course, about Walt Whitman. Uh, it's written by Matt Miller and published by the uh, uh, University of Nebraska Press. And I started to think about all of these, uh, all these aspects of collage, and Having studied collage for many years with the wonderful visual artist and teacher Mariano del Rosario, I the words transformation and repair come up all the time, and they really they you know it's just over and over again transformation and mm. repair, and uh, it was part of all of this. It was part of these all these different things that I had seen that day. So um, one of the things that I was really intrigued by with Whitman uh, once again is how he uh, would take lists of it. He had catalogs and newspapers and all sorts of things, but he had he kept lists of things like body parts, and he mm. he wrote them exactly as they were. He wasn't he wasn't changing them. He was just you know the tongue and or the foot. And then I went through some of his poetry. I wanted to find a good example of that. And what I'm going to read to you is a uh, is number part of number nine from I Sing the Body Electric. Oh, my body, I dare not desert the likes of you and other men and women, nor the likes of the parts of you. 
I believe the likes of you are to stand or fall with the likes of the soul and that they are the soul. I believe the likes of you shall stand or fall with my poems and that they are my poems. Man's, woman's, child's, youth, wife's, husband's, mother's, father's, young man's, young woman's poems. Head, neck, hair, ears, drop, eyes, eye fringes, iris of the eye, eyebrows, and the waking or sleeping of the lids, mouth, tongue, lips, teeth, roof of the mouth, jaws, and the jaw hinges, nose, nostrils of the nose, and the partition, cheeks, temples, forehead, chin, throat, back of the neck, etc. And I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. Mm. And I just loved how he just he just chunked it out. He just took these lists and he he put these into into his poems. And, and one of the, there's a quote in the book which I really love, and I think you, you two certainly will, uh, will, will really like this, and, and I hope your listeners will too. Um, in one of his prose collections, Specimen Days, Whitman uh, described a creative backstory in which he would, quote, go home, untie the bundle of my notebook fragments, reel out diary scraps and memoranda just as they are, large or small, one after another into print pages and let the melanges lacking and wants of connection take care of themselves. Wow. And, and is that wonderful? Yeah, he gave us uh, uh, what he was, uh, he described what he was doing. I mean, it, it is, so and, it, and he says it's the most wayward, spontaneous, fragmentary book ever printed. And I just found that very exciting. Fantastic. Mm, mm. And, you know, yeah, very, very uh, modern you know, he's, he's doing this long before Dada right. poets. That's right. I mean, he was doing this in 1854, and he was rolling mm. around. He was, he was looking for a new way of doing things. And repeatedly in his notebooks are uh, an Italian word, which I'm probably going to butcher, but I'm going to try and um, rifacimento, which, uh, which oh. means to um, uh, pull pull together or to remake, actually to yeah. remake. So he's constantly, you know, a recreation of something uh, is the process of making it exist or to make it exist again in a different form, which is the, um, mm. the definition. And it wasn't until 1912 um, that Picasso and Brock uh, created in visual art, they created a collage, and that word is taken from couleur uh, in French, which means to glue. Right. Well, he was so incredible. Uh, I wonder if they great. read. I wonder if they knew about him. I don't know. Mm. That's a really good question. But it, it is so modern, and when we look at what we're all doing now, I mean, so many of us are combining. I mean, how many combinations are there of what we're all doing now? Um, lots and lots and lots, and it's mixed media. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I think in the back of my mind is I kind of distrust these uh, poets that tell you that it's all spontaneous and they don't uh, edit. You know, right. like you can hear the elegance in that list, the nose, yes. the nostrils mm-hmm. of the yes. nose. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not, it doesn't sound like a science textbook. He's, he's pl- placing these little twists into mm-hmm. it that, that are the mark of a great poet. You know, it exactly. seems to me... You know, because uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg, you know, the Beats would say, oh, yeah, we just write it, you know, first thought, best thought, just comes out of our head. You know, and these guys studied it. Mm, 
Columbia with some of the major intellects of the age, you know. Right. So you can always tell. I mean, I think you can always, with anything, you can tell when there is something behind it. I mean, I think that's what you're mm. saying. There's some, there's some, there's some way of, there's some knowing uh, behind it. I mean, I know in making collages and visual art, I mean, you are tending to all of the things like competition, composition and light and dark and, you know, all, mm. all of that and bridging borders and connecting, connecting and, and all of that. So it's not just a random. I mean, that's why I always, it's always a joke when people look at Jackson Pollock and they say, oh, anybody could do that. But you can't because there really right. is a structure in there. And you're right. Whitman has really taken, he's made real choices. Um, and if you, if you look at it more carefully, you can, you can get an understanding of the choices that he has made. So. Pamela, this yeah. has been fabulous. Thank you so much. Pamela Moshe Pierce. Yes, Holy thank you. Large. It was great. All right, I'm going to sit back and enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks, Thanks so much. Me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, that really thoughtful uh, uh, little uh, discussion yes. she had there. Pamela that was has, very interesting. She has like little mini lectures that she, she shares with us, which is great. And um, right now I'm going to play something. Um, oh, from, right. Uh, from a Woodstock performance reading that you gave. Um, and I'm just going to play it and then we can talk about it. Okay. The Bungalow Bop. <laughs> Bungalow Bop, um, words by Sparrow, music by Robert 
Burke Warren with Robert on um, guitar, Sparrow on tonet guitar, and laughter. And it's very <laughs> joyous. It was from a, uh, my husband was able to extract that from the video, and you, you can't see it, but that Sparrow was just dancing and bopping, and it was really very infectious. So, Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was written for that essay that I just uh, was reading from, the one about uh, Dance Your Way to Health, where I uh, uh-huh. suggest uh, that uh, everyone start their own dance craze. The way that, uh, you know, when I was a kid in the 60s, there'd be, like, a new song. Uh, actually, I was just um, lately obsessing on the song Barefootin'. I don't know if you remember this song, 1966. Sounds familiar. Kinda, I guess you would call it a soul song. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was, a, I forget his name, some guy with a generic name like Robert Smith or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he did a song that, you know, here's how you, dan- you dance it. you got to dance it barefoot. So I invented a kind of a Catskills dance craze called the Bungalow Bop, and, uh, and Robert put it to music, yes. and then I played kind of crazy tonette over it, and my um, out-of-tune seven-string guitar that my wife bought in Russia in 1971, um, that I was also playing, I don't know how much you could hear it, it sounded, it's funny that we really do sound kind of like a acoustic version of the Velvet Underground, kind of. Mm, well, what is your musical practice, Sparrow? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, every day I try to play. You know, what I do is I, at night, you know, I meditate twice a day. I'm in a group called the Ananda Marga Society. I don't know if I'm shaming them by mentioning them, but um, uh, so I do this meditation twice a day. The second meditation, I do kirtan, which is a kind of a Sanskrit song that you sing and while you dance. It's a two-step that you dance and sing. The way we do it, anyway, it's a two-step. And I play my guitar and I chant our basic chant, Babanam Kewalam, and I kind of make up a new little uh, tune every day. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, and the, t- the guitar is completely out of tune, can't be tuned, I was told. And then, so I try to, but I have carpal tunnel syndrome, so I could only uh, do about two minutes a day of playing. Mm. So, you know, I for a long time I was using a uh, some kind of wind instrument till I got this guitar. I'm kind of interested in kind of playing around on the guitar lately. But, uh, you know, before that I've had uh, an ocarina, all these instruments have kind of, I've lost them all or they've died. You know, I studied the recorder when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And so the you know, when you're studying the recorder, the but then the, the lessons stopped because the uh, the teacher was a pedophile. Anyway, I heard oh, that dear. years later. But anyway, this was in Manhattan in my housing project where I grew up, Dykeman Houses. And before you can work your way all the way up to a recorder, they give you a tonette, which is like a little plastic, uh, you know, nice. cigar-shaped instrument, a little bit like a like a recorder. So years later, I was in Fomola, and I discovered my tonette, and I discovered I could uh, play notes on it. Anybody can play on it. You just blow into it, and we're sounds come out and uh, you know I liked it I thought it sounded quite good my tonette on that uh, song <laughs> it <did. laughs> I, it's interesting because it's very collage because Robert is playing chord progressions standard chord, chord progressions and then you come in with sort of a deconstructionist stance about what you're doing yeah 
I mean, I'm very influenced by avant-garde jazz yeah. in my, you know, performance, maybe in everything I do. You know, you could argue that Lornette Coleman is kind of lurking behind uh, everything that I write. It's not impossible. Hmm. I mean, I had some kind of epiphany. I mean, I, my wife and I got married in 89, and she had only listened to classical music. I only listened mm-hmm. to rock. Mm-hmm. So then we compromised. I mean, we lived in a tiny apartment in the East Village, so, you know, it was kind of before they invented headphones. So we would play. I was constantly playing music, so so I would play mostly uh, jazz as a compromise, and sometimes blues. Someone gave us the complete Robert Johnson uh, cassettes for our wedding, so we listened to them. We listened to cassettes. But, uh, you know, around that time, I started listening seriously to Ornette Coleman, and I just listened to it, and it was like, this makes no sense. Mm-hmm. This is just like, it's like bebop that's out of tune, that's like sort of not enough notes. And then one day, it just dawned on me, you know, it's like, I, it was like learning a language, like learning Portuguese in one moment, <laughs> you know, it was like... What does he call it? Harmelodics, right? He, he mm. had this whole theory. It was like a philosophy that was also a musical style. And, and that, that moment, that epiphany of, uh, speaking of this book, which I wrote, which is called, you know, And Other Epiphanies, mm-hmm. that real epiphany I had of suddenly understanding Arnett, you know, who knows what effect such a thing sure. has in one's life. You know? Sure. And you, you um, meditate. Do you get ideas for your writing during your meditation well, I mean, that's one reason, you know, I was telling you that I, I don't talk before 12.01 p.m., mm-hmm. so I don't talk all morning. And the reason, basically, that I started doing that, as I recall, is I use, you know, you're supposed to wake up, in my group, you're supposed to wake up at 5 in the morning and meditate. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so I uh, get up, you know, much later than that, because I stay up really late at night, but I... Uh, what is my point? I used to meditate in the morning, and then I, the whole time I'd be thinking of poems or other thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd have all these interesting thoughts, and then I was, like, tormented. Should I try to remember the thoughts? Well, that's not meditation. You know, that's just writing. <laughs> well, Should I try to not it, remember the thoughts? Right. But then I'll forget the thoughts. Exactly. You that's know, a form of meditation for some writing. Well, I mean, it's maybe. It's not the type of meditation I'm supposed to be doing. I'll say, put it that way. Mm-hmm. So I just decided, all right, I'm not going to meditate in the morning. I'm just going to lay in bed and think. I'm going to mm-hmm. do. I'm going to be Western and contemplative, kind of. You know, I'm <laughs> thinking. I'm daydreaming, really, which is what you do when you're meditating, anyway. At least if you're me. But I, I'm intentionally daydreaming. Right, with a I'm note, like, with, a, with a notebook by your side. No, not with no? a notebook because I have okay. carpal tunnel syndrome. So I. Oh. Uh, so That's I used right. this method, the ancient Greek uh, memorization method. Uh, what was the poem I wrote this morning? Well, you know, uh, can you explain uh, that for uh, briefly? Yeah, yeah, I'll explain it. But I was trying to give an example. But mm-hmm. I, oh yeah, I know what it was. I wrote a poem this morning. <laughs> it's maybe easier to give a concrete example. Mm-hmm. I wrote a poem called Party Wisdom. I actually, wrote two poems called Party Wisdom. These are like wisdom about how to have a party. Mm-hmm. You know, about partying. I was going to call it partying wisdom, but I didn't like the phrase. You have you have so uh, advice in the book about parties too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. About how to give a party. Right. Very right. interesting, weird advice about parties. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I wrote this poem this morning. Party wisdom. Never vomit on a lamp. <laughs> so I wrote that. It's very compact. And then I wanted to remember it. 
you know? It's good advice. I mean, I don't know if you can get electrocuted from vomiting on a lamp. I just think it's really hard to clean. That's what I was thinking. You can't put it on your head as easily during a party. <laughs> well, if you're really drunk, I suppose it doesn't matter. But again, that's but, so uh, visual. I mean, you, can't not, you cannot unsee that now. <laughs> yeah, do you watch these videos? Oh, no, there's a videos where they, that are called You Can't Unhear This. Uh, they're like videos about the Beatles. I'm writing this book about how much I hate the Beatles, so I'm like <laughs> constantly studying the Beatles, and there's some guy who has this You Can't Unhear This series of videos. Um, yeah, yeah, it is true. It is very visual. It Absolutely. looks a little bit like an Archie comic in my mind. So I pictured, so I wake up in the morning, I have to do these Oh, hand-washing exercises to help my carpal mm-hmm, tunnel syndrome mm-hmm. that some uh, healer in Ash, Ashland, I think it's called Ashland, New York, gave me these exercises maybe 22 years ago. So I've been doing them every day for 22 years, and maybe they help a little. Mm-hmm. So uh, first I wash my hands in very cold water, then in very hot water. So I can't immediately run to my computer and write down that brilliant lamp poem. (laughs) So I just picture a little lamp on my floor. So the the ancient uh, Greek method is you you think of a room where you know all the furniture, Mm -hmm. and then you picture an object on one of those pieces of furniture. You know, let's say a lamp on top of your uh, armchair. Mm -hmm. And then that'll remind you, you have to think of the right, visual image. It's funny because we're talking about how visual my poems are, and here I remember them with these highly visual cues. So then I remember that all the way till I get to the uh, computer, and then I speak it to my computer. I'm a use a voice-activated computer because of my carpal tunnel mm-hmm. syndrome. So I like to say I'm not a writer. I mean, like, literally not a writer. I almost never write anything with my hand. You know, I, I'm a talker. Mm-hmm. I'm a thinker. I'm like a shaman who, you know, in a, in a ancient tribe or right. current tribe who just like sits by the fire stares at the flames has a vision and then says it you know i what i do is oral you're not, right uh, it, or an electronic so you're an, an electronic shaman i have an electronic uh, uh amanuensis <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. Amanuensis. Amanuensis <laughs> is a person yes. that writes down your your thoughts. That's beautiful. If, you, I if love you're that. Milton, you're blind. You have three daughters, but I think only one of them, like at least fourteen year old girl, wrote uh, Paradise Lost. <laughs> oh my! What a what a concept! <laughs> Actually, yeah. wrote it. You know, mm-hmm. he said. Sure, it. of course. But but you know, uh, I was there was a book. Was it called Two Lives about uh, Gertrude Stein and? Uh, Alice B. Toklas, and it mm-hmm. said that Gertrude Stein had a version of this. She would write longhand for one hour a day. Each time she finished a page, she'd throw it on the floor. When she was done, Alice B. Toklas, her, you know, wife, mm-hmm. would pick up all the papers and type them up. Oh, that's what but if like... Gertrude Stein was writing about how much she liked some pretty girl, you know, Alice B. Toklas would change the name or leave it out. You know, <laughs> she, would, she, would she had editorial interfere. privileges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're oh, really reading great. Alice B. Toklas. You're not reading Gertrude Stein. We are running out. Believe it or not, we're running out of time. Sparrow, you have to come back. Um, oh, yeah. Two I'll other books that, here. yeah, you've had two other books we need to talk about, more about this one and about your philosophy of, of living, et cetera. Uh, would you, would you uh, read something very briefly for us to go out with? Um, yeah, sure. That'd I mean, great. I guess I'll read... Uh, I was going to read from my other book, but maybe... Okay, I'll just read these things. Anything these little, 
brief epiphanies. Okay. Gravity reminds us that the earth is below, pulling. The earth needs us. Hmm. If you don't believe in God, try praying to the New York Times. Oh, New York Times, send me a warm wind this afternoon. Hmm. I have found this to be extraordinarily effective. Can I read one poem now? Yes, please. We have time. We have about, okay, a, mi- we have called, about a minute. This is called The Requirements. You don't need poetic talent to write a poem. All you need is courage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll, I have true. time maybe for this one piece here. Don't just celebrate your birthday. Try to intuit the day of your death and celebrate that, too. Um, mm. they're, very poign- that, they're very poignant. I, I, I will yeah, some leave- of them are a little sort of sad. Yeah, I will, leave, I will leave the listeners with your poignancy, Sparrow. <laughs> yes, people don't notice enough. That's right. That's right. And thank you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You have to come back. We'll make it in 2022, and um, we'll talk about that soon. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your beautiful work and wisdom with us. Thank you, Sparrow. Thank you. It was you. really fun, actually. It was really fun. And thank you, Pamela yep. Manche-Pierce, our poet at large. That's right. And uh, uh, tune in in two weeks uh, with, a, with an archive show of Rosalie Poet, Rosalie Rothman, who says, Sparrow, that, you, that she knows you from years ago. You used to write little bits of poetry on paper and send them to her. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I seem to know everyone, and I have a terrible memory. <laughs> But I'm sure I like her very much. I happen to like everyone. I know. It's one of my flaws. Well, and and your strengths. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. 